newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. This is the Media Project. For almost 30 years, a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the media. And we're glad to have you join us here. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, now with The Upstate American, which you can find online. I'm here with some other veteran journalists, Judy Patrick, who was the editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association, and Barbara Lombardo, executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy. And there's Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Kingston paper, the Daily Freeman and affiliated publications. How y'all doing here? I think it's more than 30 years. I, I would love mm-hmm. for us to get a handle on that exactly. I'm looking at our producer, David Gustina, because the station is about 40 years old, and I'm pretty certain, because I was on many, many years ago in the late 80s. So it's, Well, it's I can quite tell you it began when Gary Fryer, who had been the communication director for Governor Mario Cuomo, when Cuomo lost office, Gary Fryer and Alan Shartok decided they wanted to do a show to get even with the media, <laughs> to analyze the media, because the media is always taking pot shots at politicians, supposedly. So Cuomo lost in 94. So this uh, program began in the beginning of 95, I wow. think. How about that? So, so that, you're right. In, that, in the beginning of the Internet age? Pre, actually. Pre-internet Almost, age. yeah. I remember when I first arrived at the Times Union in 1995, in early 96, the guy who is my predecessor as editor, Jeff Cohen, asked everybody to tell him what was their favorite website. And it was because he wanted us to become web aware. And I didn't have an answer. So I went to the guy who was then running what was called the Electric TU, which is the predecessor <laughs> of TimesUnion.com. Electric TU was the brand. And I said, well, what's my favorite website? And he said, well, you would like the New York Times.com. And I just really didn't know. So, I mean, that's how far we've come just in... Well, that's almost 30 years now. It also just anecdotally explains why the legacy media, particularly in print, was not ready for this revolution, and it should have been the digital revolution. And and by the time it really geared up to places it ought to have been, others had bypassed us. I think that there were some who were better prepared than others. The first person who ever showed me what a website was was Ken Paulson, who was the editor in, in those days of what became the Journal News, uh, which is the newspapers of Westchester County. He was in the Gannett editor. Rockland. He became editor of USA Today, and he's now the journalism dean at Eastern Tennessee State University. And I believe that Gannett in those days had the name NewYork.com. I believe they owned that and sold it. Now, wouldn't you wish that you had NewYork.com right now as a brand? That's a pretty powerful brand, I think. Anyway, I didn't understand what it was, and look how far we've come, and, uh, or else we're just very old. 
Right. I remember Eric Anderson, my business editor at the time, who eventually went to work at the Times Union, preaching about the value of the Internet. And I, and at the time, I was knitting while I was online because it took so long for a page to load. And I said, <laughs> this will never go. No yeah. one is ever going to be able to have the patience to do anything wonderful with this technology. And now nowadays, we stream movies. Well, one of. of the many publishers that I had over the years, and was only there for a couple of years and is no longer in the news business, was very adamant at the time saying, this is a fad. Huh. Don't worry about this. Don't worry. People are not going to want to read their newspapers on a computer. Right. You can't take it into the bathroom. Well, we know better about that. <laughs> Quite amazing. I think I mentioned it on this program a few weeks ago, is that we were unprepared, we meaning the business side, was the impact that Craigslist was going to have on our classified advertising, which right. had, had historically been exclusive to the newspaper business. If you wanted to buy or sell or look for a job or get an automobile, you'd go to the newspaper's classified section. And when Craigslist came around, we didn't really treat it seriously. I, I can recall a, a publisher's meeting with Dave Mack at the Rochester paper, we guys ought to be paying attention to this because you're going to eat our lunch. And guess what? He was right. They ate our lunch and our dinner and our breakfast. <laughs> and we weren't ready for it. A fatal arrogance. Yeah. yeah. It was hard to see how that could be. You know, who wants to have to lug around a computer? Nobody except <laughs> some people perhaps foresaw the fact that we're all carrying cell phones that are sitting there. But it was not on only that, Craigslist was free. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Which certainly eroded the revenue of newspapers, that plus the advertising inserts that used to make newspapers really, really fat and do not anymore. So that has all had such an impact. And of course, the companies that own newspapers that survive have gotten into the digital side of things so rapidly, but it is too little too late. Chasing instead of leading. Well, mm. when you talk about missing the boat and not being able to plan ahead, there was a story we looked at the other day about the New York Times trying to look ahead in terms of being better prepared with AI, although that ship's been in motion for a while now. It has. They now have a director of AI. So that's, I mean, we all know that that's going to play a huge role in newspaper production. You don't, uh, my, my first internship in newspapering, I spent half my time in the sports department taking calls that would end up being in agate listings, you know, which is the little tiny type folks. Agate is the word in newspapering for the little, the scores that go onto the sports pages. And, you know, you don't need that anymore. AI can do games and actually write game summaries. So that's just the beginning of it. To use AI as a reporting tool is just sensible at this point, right? But I, I give the Times credit for creating this position. But just as I mentioned with Craigslist, the cow is already out of the barn. They're chasing. Now, good for them. They're doing it. And I don't know how many other companies are, but we're chasing. You know, AI seems like it's brand new, but it's not brand new to people who have had an iPhone and have been talking to Siri for years. There are any number of examples of AI beyond what has been discussed recently about plagiarism and generating content that may or may not be done by human beings. But AI has been around a long time, and now we're finally recognizing it and trying to deal with it. Well, one of the things the industry is trying to do is establish policies that recognize basic principles that we should adhere to when we're using AI. I, I can't imagine that many newspapers or organizations already have this, but at the upper level, you, you see some policies that deal directly with when you can use AI, when it should be labeled, and some moral discussion about that as well. So is that going to really affect communication generally? Journalism has 
ethical standards that we follow, which is what you're talking about here, but the rest of the communication industry doesn't, and it's not followed by Fox News, for example, and its lesser imitators. So I worry that real journalism is going to be left behind because we have principles of that sort, and communication is going to just be guided by unethical players who can generate fake content based on artificial intelligence. It's yeah. a difficult you know, the, the AI-generated content that I've read so far is stilted. There's something about it that is recognizable, not easily recognizable, but it just, for a trained editor, it comes across as, this is machine language. I know it will get better, but for now, I'm not seeing it duplicate a great opinion column or a wonderful feature story. It's just not there yet. I think it has some wonderful uses in terms of doing some of that backbreaking, mind-boggling headline writing, for example, or article summarizing that we spend a lot of time. I think that's fine, but in terms of regular reporting, it's not there yet. Well, as you're right, it, it should make it easier, even if you have a human reviewing a headline, the initial writing of a headline, which sometimes you sit there and stare at a story and think, that, how am I going to get an active verb into this? How am I going to fit it into this amount of space with the right count. To actually have a computer that can do that is a wonderful thing. Right? Wow, so that's one of the things I am more doubtful about a computer doing, because if you're asking a computer to scan a story and decide which elements to use as a headline, wow. We all know as experienced editors, when we're reading a story, it's much more nuanced about what you want to pull out as the most important thing. What are the key words, but not just what are the key words. What words do you want to get in there? And the challenge of making a headline fit that we faced in the print days are long gone. Oh, because on digital you don't on have to make it fit if you don't, you don't if, if you don't care any, about design. I think digital design still has standards like that, it don't has you think? Some standards. <laughs> but some we're not standards. counting letters anymore. Like we're not counting. Yeah. These were two. Uh-huh. Right. You don't have to count the <laughs> letters. You don't exactly have to worry. We're don't don't break with a preposition after the first line. Or right. Did you did you guys have the same experience as I did growing up in the business? In our in our office, we had the composing room, which doesn't exist anymore on the third floor and the editorial department was on the second floor and we would put typewritten copy and headlines were put into a basket and the basket went up to the like a pneumatic tube up at the mm. top but relative to what you're talking about if we wrote a headline that was too long the composing room would have to send it back downstairs right. which drove them crazy and they would ring a buzzer to, to alert us to the fact that, that, that it was coming down. but And they would just ring this as an incentive to get this headline right the first time. They would buzz forever. That's the glorious old days of newspapers. Yeah, I don't think anybody type. misses that. Yeah, <laughs> but it sounds sort of romantic now, doesn't well, it? Well, you had a pneumatic tube. No, oh, yeah. we had a basket, but oh. it's sort of like a like pneumatic tube. Oh, okay. we had we pneumatic had a dump, tubes. We had a dumbwaiter. Sure, you did at the Times Union. You know, no, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about Newsday down on okay. the Long Island, you know. And actually, a great friend of mine, James Barron at the New York Times, tells a funny story about WQXR, the station of the New York Times, which would get headlines from the newsroom via pneumatic tube. And there was a guy actually reading a uh, newscast on the air in WQXR. <laughs> and he heard the pneumatic tube came in and so he said this just in from the New York Times newsroom and he opened it up and out fell a banana somebody had sent him a snack Uh, so anyway it's just a fun little story the the pneumatic tubes were wonderful little devices but the gap between the composing room where they actually had to put things together and the newsroom it's it's hard for people who didn't grow up in that environment of hot type, you know, hot lead being the way that type was set, to even contemplate that you couldn't just type something in your computer and it could be 
actually put right onto the page. Well, you also had to learn how to read backwards. Those of us who were in charge of following the page forms along in the hot type days, the type was in reverse. And if you're trying to read what was going on, you had to. there was like a whole new language you had to read. Okay, so now while we're talking about the old days here, folks, and you can share your memories too, media.wamc.org <laughs> is how we get there. Let's talk about uh, how the standards and the stories even have changed. Here now, the most read story of 2023, according to Chartbeat. Now, this isn't a scientific method because Chartbeat is a software, but 60,000 different journalism entities use Chartbeat. It tracks readership engagement, how many times stories are clicked upon. At the Times Union Newsroom, we had a display that showed how stories were playing on Chartbeat so reporters could be depressed about how little people were reading their work. But actually, Chartbeat reports the number one story of 2023 from its 60,000 clients. You know what that was? Well, you know, because you guys have read this. We're, we're listeners. Do you know what it was? You can, can't imagine. It was a Los Angeles Times report on the death of Matthew Perry, the star of Friends. This is what really engages readers. And the second was an account identifying a 72-year-old shooter in the mass killing in uh, the dance hall in Monterey Park. That's at the Los Angeles Times because that is possibly one of the biggest clients of Chartbeat. But it, what it shows is that celebrity and true crime are really huge motivators of interest, more so even than war politics and economics, the topics that we tend to think we ought to be telling well, Broadcast people. and TV news discovered that early on, and thus the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. Crime stories, they could be a murder in a neighborhood at 6 o'clock in the morning, and the lead story at 6 o'clock at night is not only that story, but the reporter is still standing by him or herself reporting it. But that's what viewers want as well. Yeah. It's really kind of an amazing thing. No war in Gaza, not even Donald Trump, no politics. But is it measuring all stories under that topic, or is it measuring a specific story? And who gets to be counted among chart beat? Good point. Uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. It's not so, scientific. It's only chart beat clients. Yeah, who so, are, I mean, lots yeah. of people might have clicked on a war story, but maybe not the one war story. That's probably right. So you're kind of skewing... See, now there's a journalist thinking yeah. uh, for you. How about that? Uh, that's an editor who's second-guessing. This is why reporters get so ticked off at editors, right? You answer, ask good questions. Yeah, this whole <laughs> idea, this focus on data, and, and we've all had experience with talking to reporters about once the, the information became available, about how, many of the, how much people were reading their stories. Um, it was a rude awakening for a lot of reporters who believed that their opus on the sewer commission was going to get a lot of hits when they realized only three people actually read it. And the story about the missing cat or the bear up the tree got 100,000 hits. It can be discouraging to reporters, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a reality that editors and reporters have to it's deal with. It's eye-opening, and it's good to have it as a tool where it's not just the editor saying it. Here's the, here's the, num here's the actual clicks to tell you about it. I used to tell my reporters... And now I tell my journalism students, your mother wouldn't read to the end of the story. <laughs> and I'm only reading to the end because I'm getting paid. Right? Or the person, the subject of the story is probably not even going to read the whole, all 30 inches of this. Now, how do you, just thinking though, but how do you deal with that then as a news person who cares about the content, uh, about the value of good journalism, then talk uh, for our listeners about about the balance of that, about understanding some stuff that's important doesn't get the attention. So what do you do about that? 
right? It's part of our job is to maybe tell the story in a different way, pull out pieces of the story if it's really long and if there is really valuable information in the middle or towards the bottom, somehow pull it out or to make it two or three stories or to add some video or to post it on Instagram or TikTok. I mean, I, I, one of our challenges as an industry is we've always said, well, we write the stories, we print the stories, we can't read the stories to you. It's up to you to read the stories. Well, it's actually up to us to find ways of getting that information to them in a way that they will actually consume. And now, and now a lot of the sites do read the stories to you. It's wonderful. <laughs> but you can have what are the five biggest takeaways from this news as a sidebar. And that, those are usually helpful. It's kind of a, in a Q&A format or a list format. Things like that help the readers now, and it's a great use for the AI. A good headline written by a human uh -huh. can help get the message You know, across. the website Axios uses the phrase as smart brevity. That is, uh, they've actually trademarked that as their slogan. But smart brevity is a great way to think about presenting the news, though there are some complex stories that don't lend themselves to brevity. But you're right, repetition, not assuming that readers have always read everything you've written and that therefore they uh, That's a good lesson you need too. to come back and do the story again and then do it again and do it again, really. Or have a little recap in a story of what for people. You can't assume that everyone has been following every yeah. word of every story you've written on the topic. But now, now, so Ira, as a publisher, you were really concerned, not that we weren't as editors, but as uh, concerned about the value proposition for readers to keep them coming back so that uh, it would motivate the advertisers to be there, which produces the revenue. And if your content is not getting the attention, if it's not getting the numbers, then that suggests that uh, you're not going to be able to sustain that revenue for a long time. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I'm, in, I'm in that transition period where I was leaving just as this was coming in full-fledged, so I'm not the best expert to talk about it. But that, that having been said, obviously you want to get as many readers to your product as you can get. But the question is whether it's in digital or in print, I would think, is how are you going about getting those people? Are you putting stories out there specifically because you think it'll sell, draw more eyeballs, or because the story is important? And, I, and I'm still of the school that you put them out there because the story is important. But that's why I've been retired 10 years. The business is changing. <laughs> right. You find that you have to go for a mix of that. You yeah. have to say, oh, this story will really grab a lot of eyeballs and, and, and do that. And one of the, the values of data-driven um, editorial decision-making, even though it's not perfect, is that um, with our increasingly limited uh, reporting resources, it helps us figure out, oh, well, if no one is going to read this particular story, then what is the point of writing it? If it's a really important issue, we, we still need to cover it. But if it's a rehash of a, an issue that's been covered for six months, do we really need, would the, our, serve, our journalistic perspective be better served if that reporter, not that he write the story about the cat up the tree, but pursues some other line at town hall? But that's a calculus that we've always made. The only yes. difference is now we can literally look at the, the scoreboard, and, and I'm not sure that that's the healthy, healthiest thing, although it's instructive. It's I, a lot easier to make that argument with a reporter when you have a little bit of data behind you. Yeah, I once wrote a four-part series uh, for Newsday, the Long Island paper, on the oh, bond no. refinancing <laughs> of the Southwest Sewer District. <laughs> bond refinancing, folks. You're going to go to hell for that. It's <laughs> <laughs> framed in their living room. It's the sort of story that wins awards. Oh, it was oh. very important stuff. And, uh, uh, it, well, that could be, I suppose. Uh, perhaps not in my telling it didn't, but... Uh, 
But, you know, you would sometimes uh, get so caught up in what something, what how important something was. Um, I had an editor who, when I first came, uh, was sent to Albany, said, I want you to look into the State Public Service Commission. It's so important. You know, they regulate utility rates, telephones, gas, electricity. And so... And it is important. It is important. And I spent weeks uh, looking into the State Public Service Commission and, and analyzing how it compared to the utility regulators in other states. And I had pre- and I prepared another four-part series. That was, you know, I was a specialist in four-part series. And it didn't run, and it didn't run, and it didn't run. And there came a Thursday, finally, toward the end of the year, when my editor downstate called me up here in Albany and said, we have to reduce this series. Uh, it's going to have to get into the paper before the end of the year, and so we have to shorten it. And I said, okay, in my four-part series on the State Public Service Commission. He said, I need 750 words. <laughs> Which isn't a four-part 750 series. 750 <laughs> words. Uh, you know, I was kind of heartbroken. Uh, but imagine the explanation to all the people who spent those hours with me explaining and telling me stuff. So I have a lot of expertise on the Public Service Commission of the 1980s, folks, if you ever want to draw and, on it. And I'm, that I'm would here. not likely to be happening today because they wouldn't. Uh, there are very few newspapers that would have somebody identified as this is the story you're doing and not doing anything else. Right. You know, but it's possible you could have unearthed a major scandal. I mean, it, it, sometimes reporters do spend a lot of time on stories that are fruitless. But in the past, those have been important, an important part of what we do. And we don't have the luxury of sending reporters on those wild goose chases anymore. Mm-hmm. Not that that was a wild goose. Chase. <laughs> well, part of our job is to be storytellers, and a story needs to be interesting. <laughs> so there has to be some kind of a hook for a story. And sometimes if the only hook is this is important to know, yeah. Boy, that's that's hard to write a compelling story. And sometimes it is important to know. It's as and we, it will affect people in some way in their in their pocketbook, in their uh, what they can listen to, in their you know understanding of what's going on in the community. So. It's the spinach, though. That's the problem. You know, spinach is good for you, but sometimes just lecturing a kid, eat your spinach, is not the way to get it done. So we can't just give readers spinach. And if you cook it, it gets smaller. <laughs> <laughs> No, Barbara, you're missing the point. This is not literal. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. Uh, if you want to share your thoughts, media at WAMC.org. Uh, that's Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Rex Smith here for uh, with you, uh, talking as we uh, near the end of the year about some of the uh, important stories and the, the big media moments. You know, you talk about some of the important things that have gone on in media. I think one of the key things this past year was the implosion of Twitter, uh, which Elon Musk transformed into X, uh, which used to be such an important journalistic tool. It was such an important way for people to get information. To a certain extent, it still is, but millions of people have gone away uh, from Twitter, and its credibility has just been decimated. So I think that is an important change in the media landscape over the past year. What else? What jumped out at you all uh, as important in 2023, looking back? Well, I, just to piggyback on Twitter, it's not only there are not any number of really la- landmark stories that happened this year, but Twitter, in addition to what you described, is a company that when it was sold to Elon Musk, he's lost more than 50 percent of its value since since he took over. The, the, I believe I read that they're going to be making, believe it or not, two and a half billion dollars from Twitter this year. 
However, if that's the statistic was they budgeted, the original owners budgeted $5 billion, and the path that they were going was closer to $7.5 billion. So a significant amount of resources that Musk apparently just feels he can, you know, wave away is lost. And uh, can you imagine that money being put to good use in any number of places in journalism today? Hmm. What else? I was uh, amazed by the staying power of the Fox network. So it got hit with this 770, 760 million dollar uh, uh, lawsuit and it, that it's going to have to pay up. And then it lost its big guy, Tucker Carlson, went away. But at the end of the year, its, um, its viewership is still high. It's still out there uh, doing what it has always done, although a little bit uh, more reserved. But it, it just shows that the network itself is strong and powerful and and is resilient in the face of adversity. Adversity. Tucker Carlson's come and go, but Fox, we don't like to call it the news network, but Fox stays. And it also lost Rupert Murdoch this year. I mean, the, the, to the extent that people were concerned what would happen if Murdoch leaves, well, they're moving on in the direction they were going and making a lot of money. Because he left the son in charge, yeah. Lachlan, who was already a true believer yeah. in these, uh, in, in basically peddling baloney. <laughs> yes. I'm looking more at routine, important but routine coverage, ongoing coverage of issues rather than something that just happened and um, thinking of the rise of authoritarianism around the globe and the growing movement toward that in our own country. I think those... Huge story. It's it's huge, and, it, and a lot of that has developed during 2023. Hard for us to know how to cover it without seemingly being uh, partisan. But, well, listen, we will come back to some of these topics. We'll look at next week's show. We'll look back at some of the transformative media moments of 2023. And in the meantime, to those who celebrate, uh, Merry Christmas to all. And we, we certainly wish, uh, actually, Christmas is more a secular holiday than sacred these days anyhow. So uh, Merry Christmas to all. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Oh, I'm going to get my pastrami. All right. That's Ira Fussfeld, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now, newspaper men. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Ira Fussfeld, publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman, and Barbara Lombardo is the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 